This is Our American Stories, and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship, and taking care of each other. And this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop, Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work. And today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us, Amy Wright. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We were um, We met in September. We were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me. And so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York. And um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while and realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to... um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair, which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "He said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway, and... Um, 
kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again and um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and, and um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, the second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then uh, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July, so um, he came along and, and then uh, five years later, his little sister, Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty-bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from 7 to 18, um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no, to tell, <laughs> tell, us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the, the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, b- before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with, but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we hadn't really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know. And spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and um, (sighs) embarrassing time. You know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too. And so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives. And we were ready and, and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family too and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When yeah. we come back, more with Amy Wright. And that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country, uh, the chances of a a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, Upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Amy Wright. And we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You, you find out these, the, these, these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first? And also your family and friends. Talk about the, the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't, we just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to to talk about that and to, you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just, just because they, he was their brother, and it didn't it didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew what we were getting into and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um condolences, which looking back again is kind of is ridiculous, but people around us didn't know Down syndrome either. And I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this, this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to 
a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries. And it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just it has to do with love. It has to do with bringing people together and very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that you yeah. get watching, watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about yeah. that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order. Somebody else will make the beverages. Somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team. Um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always a thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people, you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they, <laughs> like heroes. And, yep. uh, you know, they, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. You're no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a a drive-through, and I found that fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive-through? Yeah, well, we just want the the whole motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that as well in a drive through Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation and you see walls start to come down and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive through um, Of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we we just do things differently here. And, um, you know, people will line up, people will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me, uh, if, you, if you can, a favorite story uh, that our audience would love to hear uh, from sure. that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there um, was a young couple that came in uh, months ago and were sitting at our counter and she was pregnant and um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them. And um, as the as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, 
you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had, to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see. I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility, I mean, that had to have been life-changing for that mother. Yep, no doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're, they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against, but the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but, you know, the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is, he doesn't make mistakes, and and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional, and, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more, you know, it's just, we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way and um, and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. And what a message of love. What a story. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. This is Our American Stories, and what you're about to hear, well, it might be disturbing to those of you listening who are sensitive to stories about animal abuse. But in this dark corner of American history, our producer Jesse Edwards brings us the story of an elephant who was killed by an angry mob. Marching into a big top to the sound of a drunken four-piece band, the elephants in Charlie Sparks' traveling circus did their best to entertain the audience on that cold afternoon of February 1916. They sat on their haunches, stood on their heads, and performed an elephant train as they placed their forelegs on each other's backs and trumpeted around the ring. In short, they performed every trick they had known, but they could not make up for the absence of the real star of the show, a five-ton Asian elephant named Mary. 
Mary's talents included picking out 25 tunes on musical horns, which she tooted out with her trunk. She was also the champion pitcher on the circus's baseball team. But on that tragic day, she had been stripped of her red and gold saddle and dress of artificial blue feathers and stood tethered in disgrace outside the tent. Waiting there, in the drizzling rain, it was said that she trembled fearfully, as if aware of the awful fate about to befall her. And well she might have done, for murderous Mary, as she became known, had not only killed a man, but had made the mistake of doing so near Irwin, Tennessee. This newly booming American railroad town had its own post office, theater, and courthouse. It also had a jail, but the sheriff's authority counted for little in a part of the world where mob rule still prevailed. Her fate was sealed the day before the hanging, when Charlie Sparks' circus train arrived in the small town of Kingsport, about 40 miles from Irwin. As always, it advertised its presence with a parade along the main street, during which Mary was ridden by 38-year-old Walter Eldridge, nicknamed Red because of his red, rusty-colored hair. He was a drifter who had been with the circus only one day. He had no experience of handling elephants, but the only qualification required was the ability to wield an elephant stick, a rod with a sharp spear at one end. While the elephant stick usually kept Mary in line, she was suffering from a painfully abscessed tooth that day. When she stopped during the parade to nibble on a piece of discarded watermelon rind, Red Eldridge jabbed her to keep her moving and inadvertently hit the tender spot. Her reaction was swift and deadly. Reaching up with her trunk, she slammed him to the ground and then stepped on his head. Blood and brains and stuff just squirted all over the street, recalled one witness. As the terrified spectators screamed and fled, a local blacksmith shot Mary with a pistol, unloading five rounds of ammunition into her thick hide to little effect. She stood still, suddenly calm again and seemingly oblivious to both the bullets and the commotion as the townsfolk encircled her with chants of kill the elephant, kill the elephant. Fearing that his dates in other towns would be canceled if they heard that his circus was home to a homicidal pachyderm, Charlie Sparks had no choice but to give in to these demands for vengeance. The only question was how Mary would meet her end. Bullets had already proved ineffective, and neither was poison likely to work. Some people advocated crushing Mary slowly between two opposing railway engines. Others called for her head to be tied to one locomotive and her legs to another so that she would be dismembered alive as they set off in opposite directions. Another option was electrocution. There was a horrific precedent for this thanks to Thomas Edison, inventor of the first commercially viable electric light bulb. At a time when America was choosing which of the two main forms of electricity to adopt, direct current or alternating current, he had patents for many devices using the former and stood to profit hugely if it was chosen over its rival. Claiming that DC was the safer of the two, Edison spread false stories about fatal accidents supposedly involving AC. He also staged various demonstrations in which animals were publicly electrocuted with AC, the most spectacular of which came about in 1903 when a new amusement park opened in New York's Coney Island. One of the attractions was an elephant named Topsy, but it was claimed that she had become violent and uncooperative and the owners sought publicity for their new venture by executing her with Edison's help. A huge crowd saw Topsy place her feet obediently into specially designed wooden sandals lined with copper wiring and linked to an AC power supply. When the switch was thrown, smoke billowed up from her feet, and within a few minutes, it was all over. One newspaper reported the public's morbid delight in watching her demise, 
even though it caused an unpleasant smell to mingle with the scent of roasted peanuts sold at two cents a bag. But her death proved in vain, because Edison's plot failed, and America eventually went with AC as its standard electricity current. This had reached rural Tennessee by 1916, but not with sufficient power to kill an elephant. So, Charlie Sparks came up with the equally sensational idea of hanging Mary. The next day, the circus visited Irwin, Tennessee, which had a 100-ton crane used to lift railway carriages on and off the tracks. This was strong enough to support an elephant, and the matinee-goers, disappointed by not seeing Mary in the ring that afternoon, were relieved by the news that they could see her being hanged shortly afterwards at no additional charge. As she was led away to the railway yard, the other four elephants followed Mary, each entwining their trunk in the tail of the animal in front, just as they had done in countless parades. Charlie Sparks hoped that the presence of the other elephants would keep Mary complacent, but as a chain was placed around her neck at the gallows, they trumpeted mournfully to her. And he feared that she might try to run away. To stop this from happening, one of her legs was tethered to a rail, but nobody thought to release it as the crane whirred into action and she was hoisted into the air. There was an awful cracking noise. The sound of her bones and ligaments snapping under the strain. She had been raised no more than five feet when the chain around her neck broke, dropping her to the ground and breaking her hip. Children in the crowd panicked and ran for cover, but Mary simply sat dazed and in terrible pain. Meanwhile, one of the circus hands ran up her back, as if climbing a hill rather than a living creature, and attached a stronger chain. The winch was powered up again, and this time Mary was raised high into the air, her thick legs thrashing and agonized shrieks and grunts audible, even over the laughter and cheers of those watching below. Finally, she fell silent and hung there for a half hour before a local vet declared her dead. Her gruesome end is recorded in a photograph so horrifically surreal that some have suggested it must be a fake. But, all too sadly, its authenticity has been confirmed by other photographs taken at the time. That night, the circus went ahead as usual. But after the show, one of the remaining elephants broke away from the herd and began running towards the railway yard. Since wild elephants are thought to return to the bones of fallen family members for many years, he perhaps went in search for Mary. But he was quickly recaptured and returned to the life of captive misery from which he had escaped. Knowing that Mary no longer had to endure this cruel and unnatural existence is perhaps the only consolation to be drawn from this awful tale. Today... She still lies buried in a huge grave which was dug for her using a steam shovel. Some said the hole was as big as a barn, but no one knows exactly where it is, or seems much inclined to find it. There remains no monument to Mary the Elephant in Irwin, Tennessee, the town which hanged an elephant and apparently remains ashamed of having done so to this very day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And we bring you every kind of story here on Our American Stories. Murderous Marys. Never heard it. It makes an amazing movie, I think. Very cinematic. Big themes. 
And to hear more of our material, go to ouramericannetwork.org and hear stories about every walk of life from American history to the arts to sports and to stories like these, stories you'd never heard of and stories that will surely move you. Sometimes they'll make you laugh. Sometimes we'll make you cry. Sometimes we'll just get you sick to your stomach and just wonder, wow, how could man be so cruel? And we were moved in just that way by Jesse's piece. More after these messages. This is our American stories. No, that's not the sound of our editing bay before we get to work. Though I wish it was. Uh, it's just a, a dad goofing off with his kids, making them laugh, tickling them, teasing them, making facial gestures. No better sound in the world than a human being laughing, young or old. Somehow as we get older, we, we don't laugh as much. Shame on us. I think that's why we have kids. And then they grow up, and we want to pull our hair out. And... We love doing stories out of the personal journal, the part of the Wall Street Journal that we know America loves, and the more Americans can get in touch with the personal part of the Wall Street Journal, called the personal journal, the better it's in there in the fourth section of the paper. I start my day every day going there first to get my sensibilities tickled. And one story in particular caught our attention a while back, and it was why are some people more ticklish than others? That was really the title. And I'm a curious guy, and it has a picture of a mom, by the way, tickling her child, and it's a beautiful picture. And I want to lead with the read of the, of the piece. It starts off like this. Wiggly fingers approaching the armpits can elicit giggles from some people. For others, even a feather caressing the toes will bring about no response. Scientists are perplexed by the variability and the origin of the tickle response. And that's why we brought Heidi Mitchell on to join us. Heidi, thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. So how, but before I even start, where do you get this story? I mean, how does this story stumble upon you? <laughs> well, we have this column every other Tuesday in the personal journal section, and they are, they are quirky. I'll give you that. Um, they, this one came from the editor of the section who happens to have, mm, I think, a three-year-old. And so she was, it was actually her idea. She was wondering, how come he's so ticklish and I'm not ticklish at all? So we're all like around, hovering around 40 and did a little census and none of us are ticklish anymore. So we wanted to know why the heck not. Wait a second. Wait not? a second. You work with a bunch of people who aren't ticklish anymore. What's wrong with you all? <laughs> well, you know, we took very scientifically a feather around and tickled people and they didn't, they didn't giggle. <laughs> they giggled. You know, we giggle because we think it's fun and funny. Right. But um, but that, that that response of the actual tickle feeling, 
it just isn't, it isn't there anymore. And so tell me this. Pretty much and, nobody. No, and, and nobody. Tell me, and by the way, this is the burning question column, by the way, in the personal journal. And this obviously was the burning question you, you had to solve. interesting people at the Wall Street Journal that happened to not be ticklish, along with the rest of the world. Wow. So, so let's, let's work this down now. So you went and you talked to neuroscientists and one David J. Linden, and he was at John Hopkins. I mean, pretty fancy name, pretty fancy uh, hospital. What, what did, what did, what did he teach you? Well, I love this guy because he spends all day studying um, mice in the lab. Um, and he happens to be, so he's a neuroscientist and he works on um, various responses in the brain, but he doesn't specifically work on touch. He's just a fanboy is what he calls himself. So he is a fanatic about our sense of touch and thinks that it involves many, many different senses. So he went around and spoke to all of these experts in the field and wrote this book the science t- called Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. And he's fascinated and, with the subject, and he's fascinating to talk to, and he has so many thoughts, and he's a fantastic interview, which is kind of a rare find. <laughs> yep. um, so, yeah, so he was our guy, and he gave, you know, we like to call it an informed opinion because uh, a lot of times science isn't totally behind uh, a lot of the subjects that we cover like tickling not a ton of research on it well tell me this then he you know and i'm going to read because i love reading from writers work um and then you just advance the ball at this point early in the article you write some scientists have argued that being ticklish is a defensive reflex against attack but dr linden finds that explanation wanting why is that so if you think about it kind of seems like that's a good explanation, right? Like the places where you're super ticklish, you know, around your neck, where you have a major gland, where you have major uh, vein around under your armpit. So that works. But then when you think about like your bottoms of your feet, well, that's not going to kill you in battle, right? Right. If you're if you're stabbed in the foot or something like that. So that sort of that's why Dr. Lennon believes that this isn't really a fully thought through idea. So he doesn't think that it's that that's why we've evolved. All these things are evolutionarily based. I mean, I'm a firm believer in trying to understand why we do what we do based on evolutionary. Um, devices. So so yeah. So we just he doesn't believe, and I agree with him. He doesn't believe that that. It's a reflex against attack. doesn't seem to carry through. So then he goes on, and I'll read again. He compares being ticklish to having an itch, which most experts believe evolved as a protective measure against infestation by insects or worms. Talk about that. Kind of gross, but yep. kind of makes sense. Because when you're, in your itching, um, when you have an itch, um, like a tickle, it's a specific kind of feeling that requires an immediate response. So um, unlike pain, which can be chronic or you can, it can linger and you cannot deal with it, like a headache or a throbbing or um, something even that's acute, but passing um, an, an itch, like a tickle, it, it provokes a very immediate response. So you might think that the, the, the tickle response is like, oh, there's like a worm crawling on me. I'm living in the cave. I'm thinking of cavemen. Right. And I'm living in a cave and there's like a bug or something. And so it's ticklish. And so I go, ah, and I, and I immediately push it away. Right. Um, but honestly, and that seems to be a pretty good explanation because bugs tend to be tickly on us. Um, but, you know, it hasn't been scientifically proven. Yeah, and it's interesting. You, you wrote here still, the neuroscientist says, 
We honestly don't know why humans are ticklish. By the way, I love it when a scientist can have some theories, but then just finally admit, look, we study this eight different ways. I'll tell you something else that was interesting, though. He says there is no indication being ticklish is inherited. He has seen tickling across every culture. So imagine this. He's studying tickling across cultures and says the behavior is often informed by social norms, taboos, and the setting in which it takes place, which, by the way, would be my theory. He says then, if someone is really angry, you can't tickle them. Um, talk about that, the setting. So I think that the, the non-inheriting part of it is, is so fascinating, right? Because you often hear people say, oh, I'm ticklish because my dad is so ticklish, you know, and it's just never, there's no link proven. There's no, he said, I wish I could just, you know, take the ticklish part of your feet and, and bisect it, dissect it. And I'd find like a whole bunch of neurons affiliated with the tickle response that is just not there. They have, just doesn't exist. And even though, um, and actually he's seen ticklish across, being ticklish across um, every single culture, um, yes, and also in, in lemurs. He said he's seen videos of lemurs that seem to have a human-like response to being tickled. Um, and you've seen it with, like, your dog, your cat. I mean, they seem to, like, enjoy it. I don't know if it's the same quite response, similar response, but not quite the same. But um, but what is so important is the situation. So tickling, unlike many other of our responses, is so situational. So if you're if you're if you're you're in love with somebody and you're having a, a moment and you're looking into each other's eyes and he like caresses your face, you know, you might tickle and giggle and it feels good. If you're in the middle of a heated argument and he does the exact same thing, you're it's, you're not gonna feel that same Oh yeah, I, I've like, tried that. I, I, I've tried that one. That doesn't work. That doesn't. My wife doesn't let me do that. That that doesn't get me anywhere. Let me share this with you. Not going to break the argument. That's for sure. Not breaking the argument. Maybe breaking a bone in my body. Actually, I got to be careful when I when I get too clever. Elbow. Exactly. So most people you wrote here also aren't able to tickle themselves. And here's where the doctor says something interesting. When you go to tickle yourself, your brain is sending a message to the tickling hand and a copy is going to the cerebellum, which sends inhibitory signals to dampen the sensation. We know this because people who have damage to their cerebellum are able to tickle themselves, says Dr. Linden. Now, this is really fascinating. I've never actually tried to tickle myself. I went ahead and actually did try, and I couldn't. And I am still very ticklish. We'll get to that in a second. Talk about why, as people get older, they, are lo- they tend to lose the ticklish sensation they once had. Well, first of all, the, the, the not being able to tickle yourself thing is, so interesting because basically what's happening is, and this is again evolutionary, so you're walking down the street and your clothes are kind of rubbing against you and they're kind of tickly if you were to think about it, Mm -hmm. but you don't think about it because you have to think about, well, am I being attacked? What food do I want to eat? Who do I want to mate with? So our bodies, our minds have evolved to take that signal of um, your clothes rubbing against your body, just as an example, or your hand moving toward your wrist to caress it. And damp sends uh, that copies that message and sends it to your cerebellum. It says, just don't think too much about that. It's not important. Focus right. on, you know, mating and finding food and shelter. Right. Um, so that's why you can't really tickle yourself. Um, as far as getting older, um, you know, it's not totally proven, but the feeling, the thought is that as starting at age 20, you start to lose a little bit of your nerve endings on your skin as you get older. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's very small, like 1% a year. Right. So that 
old people maybe don't have any feeling of, of any sensation on the bottoms of their feet, which is one, one reason why maybe they fall more often. Um, it's just one of many, many reasons. But there's other responses that we, we, the nerve endings are no longer quite attuned to, like heat and cold and pressure and, and, and pain. And so, um, so as we get older, yes, we become less ticklish. It's just one of the many senses. Uh, that we that we that diminish as we get older. So I guess if you live to a hundred, like we're all gonna live to hundred, we'll, we won't be hot, we won't be cold, awesome. and we won't um, be ticklish. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good things come of this. Heidi. Won't feel pain, maybe. <laughs> some good things come of it. <laughs> Heidi, we are we are we love this. Uh, email us when you have stories like this. Heidi Mitchell, tickling the Wall Street Journal. Go figure. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Back with more after these messages. Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you Who told you you're allowed to rain on my parade This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Barbara Streisand's remarkable performance in Funny Girl. What a singer, what an actress, what a talent. And people have opinions about Barbara Streisand, I think because she has such opinions. But my goodness, what a talent. We are here to talk about that talent and talk about, um, well, a book, a great new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power, and it's by Neil Gabler. And just a bit about Barbara Streisand before we bring Neil on. I mean, six decades she's been at it. And my goodness, five Emmys, ten Grammys, two Oscars, a Tony Award. You can go on and on. Presidential Medal of Freedom. I don't think there's been a more honored female artist in the history of American show business. And that she can do it all. I think must infuriate some people. But what we're going to dig into now is the life of Barbara Streisand. The other day we did the life of Bob Dylan, another iconic American life, an unlikely life. And Neil, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And, you know, when we were talking about Bob Dylan the other day, we played a clip and someone had asked Dylan if he was surprised at his success. And he was like, no, I had always thought I was going to be doing what I'm doing. (laughs) I mean, and not quizzically, Neil. I mean, not cockily. It wasn't, he wasn't cocky about it. It was just, I think he thought he was predestined for greatness. And I, I, I can only assume from what I've read already that that's what you learned about Barbara Streisand. Absolutely true. Uh, I don't think you can really succeed the way that Barbara Streisand succeeded if you didn't believe in yourself. Yeah. And she believed in herself against the odds. Here was a little girl who had aspired to show business from you know, the, the, the earliest age and whose own mother told her, forget that dream. You're never going to make it. You're not pretty enough. You're just not going to succeed. Here was a girl who, as she went on to high school, wouldn't even get the solo in her high school's choir. It went to someone else who was a, a more operatic kind of singer. Here was a girl who, when she first tried to enter show business, was told repeatedly the same thing that her mother had told her. 
by producers and agents. You're, you're just not attractive enough. You're going to have to find another profession. You're never going to succeed at this profession. Girls who look like you don't wind up being stars. Yep. So somehow against all of the odds, there was some sense of fortitude within Barbara Streisand that kept her going. You know, we're going to start off by playing a scene from the movie Funny Girl where Barbara is looking into the mirror at herself. She's wearing a chic leopard coat and hat with an expression made of equal parts admiration, disappointment, irony, and defiance. And by the way, she was capable as an actress of doing all of those things. And she greets herself. Let's take a listen. Hello, gorgeous. <laughs> Neil, talk about this scene and why you open your book with it. Well, this is a scene that introduces Barbara Streisand to the world. Now, she played this role, obviously, on Broadway and became a star, but this is the opening of the movie, and it is where Barbara Streisand addresses herself. And in some ways, it, it, it kind of um, expresses the themes of Barbara Streisand's career, uh, of her life, and of her work. Um, if she looks in that mirror... And when she says, hello, gorgeous, I mean, there is a sense of irony. Here's a woman who's been told repeatedly and is told in the movie as well, in the role of Fanny Bryce, Mm -hmm. that she's not gorgeous. She's not good-looking enough. The same thing, again, that Streisand had been told throughout her life. Um, And yet at that point, when she's looking in that mirror, she is a star already. This is how the film begins, and then we move into flashback. Uh, That irony has sort of been subverted. Because she is gorgeous. She has succeeded. She has become a star. And, and so there's, there is, uh, you'll have to excuse my dog in the background. Oh, no, we love dogs in the background. <laughs> it's a running theme on the show. We never get rid of them because we love dogs. Well, Go on, Neil. of them, so we may hear both of them. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you get that, that, um, th- that image of Streisand from the very outset of her film career um, as a woman who's overcoming the, the odds. You know, Neil, as your, as your book title articulates, this woman changed how we think about thinking about the conventions of beauty, femininity, and power. Explain how you came up with this thesis for your book. Well, actually, it was, it, it was not only the, the thesis, but it was the reason I wanted to write the book. Uh, I'm an admirer of Barbara Streisand. It's hard not to be. I mean, she is such an enormous talent. And I, I think whether you love her or not, uh, you have to admire her. Yep. Um, but that's not why I wrote the book. Um, the, the real impulse for writing the book was the way that she influenced culture. There are many great entertainers, many people we, we love to listen to, watch, uh, laugh at, whatever. But Barbara Streisand was more than that. She was one of those handful of entertainers who actually changed the culture. And the subtitle of the book, I, I hope, expresses the ways in which I think, the paramount ways in which I think that she changed the culture. She redefined our understanding of beauty. Before Barbara Streisand in entertainment, there were beauty conventions. And almost every woman had to abide by those conventions. You bet. They were all conventionally beautiful women. Barbara Streisand, I think, is a beautiful woman, 
but she's not conventionally beautiful in, in any sense that her predecessors were. Uh, Barbara Streisand was not a Doris Day. Uh, she looked ethnic. She acted ethnic. Yep. Um, and she also behaved in ways, and this, I think, bleeds over into the femininity issue when I talk about redefining beauty, femininity, and power. She behaved in ways that were not conventionally feminine. Neil, hold that thought, and we're going to pick up on the fem- femininity. We're talking to Neil Gabler. We're talking about Barbara Streisand and his marvelous new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages with Neil. Stories, and we're continuing with Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just did Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is one of those people, I believe, Neil, that changed the culture, too. And, uh, and you're right, so many people are, are great entertainers, um, but so few of them actually influence the way we think and what we do. And uh, thanks again for joining us. We pick up on that femininity point, Neil, and elaborate on that, if you could. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the subtitle of the book is Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And you, Barbara Streisand, I, I think, clearly changed the conventions of beauty in the movies. There had never been an actress who looked like her before, who was not a comic actress. I mean, there have been comedians who, you know, looked sort of odd, but Barbara Streisand was not a comedian, at least not primarily comedian. I mean, she was a romantic lead. Yep. So she changed that. But she also didn't behave the way women generally behaved in movies. Uh, aside from you know that relatively brief period in the 30s and 40s when you had Betty Davis and Jean Arthur and Joan Crawford um, and Irene Dunn and a number of stars who were tough and who were certainly the equals of their male co-stars, you know Barbara Streisand came into the movies at a time when women were basically submissive. Yep. And yet, submissive is not a word that you would ever apply to Barbara Streisand. And, and one of the reasons that women always were submissive on screen is that that was considered feminine. I mean, women had to be submissive to the male lead. She was not. And in a way, she challenged our concept of femininity. And the fact that she came along at a time in the 1960s when feminism was at its inception, uh, I think sort of... Streisand worked off of feminism, and feminism worked off of Streisand, and she brought that, mainstreamed that, into the movies as no other star had done. So she changed, really, our concept of femininity and allowed us to accept a woman who was tough, who was often regarded as mannish, um, but her idea was that women could be tough without losing their femininity. 
You bet. And that then, I think, you know, kind of leads into the notion of power. Because Barbara Streisand, both on screen and off screen, exuded a kind of power that no actress had ever exuded or exercised in, in the entertainment world, which is why she could become a producer yep. and a director. And, and that she wasn't, in, in that respect, a trailblazer. You can't say that about Betty Davis or any of those, those tough women of the 40s who I think dominated the screen. And you're right about the nature of most female leads. It was the Barbara Stanwyck's. It was the pinups almost, the Lauren Bacall's, just spectacular and beautiful and could have just modeled if they'd wanted to, Neil. No, no, I would, you're absolutely right. And, and where Barbara Streisand led, many women were able to follow. I mean, there's no Beck Midler without Barbara Streisand. That's right. I don't think there's a Lady Gaga. I think you're dead Barbara right. Yep. I'm not sure there's an Adele mm-hmm. without Barbara Streisand. Or a Madonna. Or a Madonna. You know, Barbara Streisand just changed the whole architecture of women in entertainment. Yeah, I've just been reading about Charlie Chaplin's life, and he was an actor who wasn't just an actor. And on the business side, uh, he, you know, he was trying to empower artists, male particularly at the time, to take control of their own lives, you know, countering a studio system by building one himself. And in well, large Barbara measure, that's just what Barbara was doing. She did. You know, you have United Artists, uh, you know, with Mary Pickford and, and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith, yep. which was a way of taking over the industry and controlling their own work. Barbara Streisand and Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman formed First Artists, which was a, a later day incarnation of that. But even though First Artists was not a success and, and it didn't last, Streisand still, within the confines of Hollywood, was able to exercise the power that I referenced earlier. Um, I mean, a, a woman director? Yeah. A woman director? I mean, that was ridiculous. unheard of. Ridiculous. And, Neil, and, and even when she did it, there were a number of, of men in Hollywood who were very resistant to the idea yep. and called her all sorts of names. So Barbara Streisand had to withstand not only the abuse of, of being regarded as ugly when she was young and still you know, persevering, but also the idea of being, well, she acts like a man and she's a diva and, and all sorts of, of um, you know, opprobrium that, were, that was hurled at her. But she withstood that as well and was able to succeed as a power in the industry. And as you said, blazed a trail not only aesthetically for women, but also in terms of power for women. You know, it's interesting, Neil. Uh, in the past six months, I've, I've covered two really interesting people from Brooklyn that lots of people love and lots of people hate and they have opinions. But both of them have thick skins and they're both American originals. It's interesting that Justice Scalia came from Brooklyn and people have a lot of opinions about him. But here he was <laughs> forging friendships with Justice Ginsburg. And no matter how much you wanted to not like him, you had to respect his talent and his intellect. And let's talk about Barbara's childhood and this Brooklyn thing, because it is a thing. And it, obviously she didn't have the family, but she had a lot of Brooklyn in her, Neil. Oh, she, was, she is Brooklyn personified. And there is something, you are rightly, there's something about Brooklyn that kind of pervades the people who were born there. It's the toughest borough of New York. Yep. Uh, it's not just a, a place. It's a way of being. We all know it's a way of talking as well. But it's a way of being. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a way of, it's a toughness 
as opposed to Manhattan, which is the, the elite borough of New York, and which scorned Brooklyn for an awfully long time, and maybe to this day still does. Yeah. But those people who were, grew up in Brooklyn, grew up with thick skins, um, grew up with a sense of, of perseverance, uh, and I mean, it was also the, the ethnic enclave of New York. Uh, I mean, cheek to jowl, you had Poles and, and the Irish and Italians and Jews, um, and, and they all somehow learned to coexist there. And that also, I think, toughened them up when they were facing mainstream middle America uh, and, and you know, were forging their way into that America, you bet. which had resisted this, these people previously. Oh, well, you know, we did a, we did a piece on Yogi Berra, uh, and, you know, he grew up in what was called Dago Hill in St. Louis. I mean, that's what it was called, Dago yeah. Hill. And people mm-hmm. forget that Italians faced all you know, kinds of discrimination. My goodness, Jews, uh, you know, you could write a book about Harvard and City College and, and, yeah. and not stop. But it never stopped Jews or Italians from being proud, for running away from themselves and being comfortable. I think what's most important, Neil, just comfortable in their own skin and being able to withstand things. And by the way, there are no safe zones in Brooklyn. These people learn how to deal with insults, with tough times, and helicopter parents weren't protecting them. My goodness, Streisand's childhood. What I want to do here, Neil, is play a clip for you and get get your reaction to this one. Then I'm going to play another one and get your reaction as well. Uh, Let's play this first one. I had a stepfather when I was seven years old. But she says he almost never talked to her. And when he did, it was awful. She still remembers he once told her she couldn't have ice cream because she was too ugly. What made him such a creep? I mean, he didn't talk to you. The man never talked to me. Why? Why? You know, at at the time that I was a child, I mean, I just thought, I just thought that I was awful. You got about a minute right here before we go to a break, but talk about this stepfather and Barbara Streisand's really remarkable ability to deal with this. The most inappropriately named man imaginable. His name was Louis Kind, and he was anything but. <laughs> uh, and he did treat Barbara miserably, and I think in a way probably toughened her. But what made it even worse was that he had a child with Barbara's mother. Uh, Roslyn, whom he absolutely doted upon, and he, and he called the two daughters Beauty, that is his own daughter Roslyn, and the Beast, his stepdaughter, uh, Barbara. And, and so, you know, this is, the, this is the environment in which Barbara Streisand was forged. And if you wonder why she's so tough, that goes some way to explaining why. Well, you know what, Neil, when we come back, we're going to talk more about that. You know, one of my favorite books of the last year is about resilience and how we build it in companies and human beings. And my goodness, that kind of childhood builds resilience. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages. So was love. This eager heart of mine was singing. Where can you be? You came at last. Love had its day.
Father has a business Strictly second hand Everything from toothpicks To a baby grand Stuff in our apartment Came from father's store Even clothes I'm wearing Someone wore before It's no wonder that I feel abused I never get a thing that ain't been used I'm wearing second-hand hats Second-hand clothes That's why This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Truly one of the great vocal talents of all time. But that wasn't enough for Barbara Streisand to conquer film and to conquer so much more. And live performance art. Oh my goodness, there aren't many greater live performers than Barbara Streisand. Broadway wasn't big enough for her. And one of the great Broadway talents that didn't spend much time on Broadway. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just played a clip of Barbara Streisand in a remarkable interview she did with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes talking about her stepfather. Here, she's talking about her mother. My mother never said to me, you're smart, you're pretty, you're anything. You could do what you want. She, ne- she never told me anything like that. My mother would, I would say to my mother now, why didn't you ever give me any compliments? She said, I didn't want you to get a swelled head. Barbara says her mother told her she was odd, skinny, and not pretty enough to be a movie star, that she should be a typist. Wow. And, and t- tell me this, Neil. She, she, the family didn't have money, did they? No, they did not. No, they were very poor. You know, Barbara's father died when she was 15 months old. Uh, suddenly he died. And, and so she never knew her father. And her mother remarried uh, to Louis Kind. Uh, but Louis Kind was not what one would call a, a hard and diligent worker. Um, so the, the, fa- the, the family lived in poverty. For a while they lived with uh, Barbara's grandparents. Uh, so there was never money in, in the house. I, I want to add one thing. When when uh, her mother said that she would never be a star, uh, she told her that what she ought to be is a secretary, because that's a that's a profession that's secure. And Barbara Streisand always said that she wore her nails so long, just so she couldn't type. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that that would preclude her from ever hitting that hitting that road. You know, it, it's interesting. We were we're, we're going to be playing a Denzel Washington commencement speech, and he was you know he's a Bronx boy and uh, grew up near Fordham University in the Bronx. And he was talking to a young graduating class about the pursuit of the arts and do not have something to fall back on. Uh, that you got to fall forward and you got to believe in yourself and you got to just keep going and moving forward. And my goodness, I don't think Barbara Streisand had a backup plan. Uh, let's- oh, there was no plan B. There was never a plan B. The second she got out of high school, and she graduated high school six months early so that she could work on plan A, she went to Manhattan and she started auditioning and trying to, to get roles. She even auditioned for the role of one of the blonde daughters in The Sound of Music, even <laughs> though no one could be more quintessentially Jewish than right. Barbara Streisand. But that's how, that's how eager she was, how determined she was, how indefatigable she was. Uh, you know, to succeed. And we know the Yiddish and, and, word chutzpah, that's, that's what it means right there, doesn't it, Neil? She is 
uh, you know, I said she was Brooklyn personified. She's also chutzpah personified. No but doubt. here's the thing about her. When we were talking about her, her Brooklyn-ness and her Jewishness, one of the things that Barbara Streisand was able to do, and I think one of the bases for her stardom, was that she took her Jewishness and she converted it into a larger sense of otherness. You know, when you look at movie stars, and she always wanted to be a movie star, she never wanted to be a singing star, but when yep. you look at movie stars from the period before Streisand, these are people we all aspired to be. We never felt that they were outsiders. We didn't identify with them. We hoped to be them. Barbara Streisand changed that transaction. She was an outsider. She looked like us. She acted like us. She'd suffered many of the same indignities that we suffered. And so when Barbara Streisand came on the scene, the source of her popularity, in my estimation, was that we could identify with her, and she was our vicarious vessel for success. Yeah, I always thought she you... made her otherness our otherness. You bet. And that made her almost the underdog that we all rooted for. And also, well, we're all underdogs, most of us. And though she had this colossal voice, which I actually think when you have that much talent, Neil, it can put a distance between you and the audience. But when you're acting and you're acting the way she did, I always felt like the, the ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and saying, go get him. Go get him. The ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and also saying, I know that she knows what I've been going through. That's because true. She had had to go through the same thing. And it's interesting to me that when you look at her movies, her movies are about that. Yep. You know, she generally plays a woman who's been put upon, a woman who has to fight to succeed, uh, a woman who doesn't always get the guy at the end of the movie. And That's you know, right. Most of her movies are romances, but if you look at her movies, at the end of the film, whether it's, it's Funny Girl or it's The Way We Were or it's Yentl, she doesn't usually get the guy. Right. And this, is, by the way, is the opposite of Woody Allen, who always gets the beautiful woman. Always. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, he's another sort of vicariousness. <laughs> well, that is. That is a male vicariousness, and that's we, we are dreamers in the end, and women, well, they live on the planet Earth. <laughs> and again, another Brooklyn boy, Woody Allen, uh, Allen Koningsberg. Uh, by the way, sort of, he never hid his Jewishness in his act, Neil, but my goodness, in his name, he certainly did. Yes. And, you know, Streisand, never, another interesting thing about her is she traded on her Jewishness. You bet. You know, most Jewish stars, most ethnic stars, let's not even, you know, uh, limit this to, to Jewish. You bet, Italians. Most ethnic stars tried to hide their ethnicity because it didn't sell in Hollywood. Yep. Um, Streisand was one of those people who succeeded not in spite of her Jewishness, but because of her Jewishness. I think that's a powerful thing, and one of the, I think one of the most powerful takeaways from the book, Neil, is that she didn't run from herself, and she didn't hide. And in an era where I think Hollywood was receptive to this, I wonder how this would have worked, Neil, if Barbara were born 15 years earlier. Oh, I think it would have been different. Yep. Although it's hard to say, that because she is so unique an individual, that maybe, maybe just maybe, she did have enough fortitude to have even fought through that 15 years earlier. But you just think about one thing, Lee. Just think about the nose job. Everyone told her, you have to get a nose job. 
I mean, she was told this repeatedly. There were reviews of her oh, yeah. saying that, you, you know, if she gets her nose fixed, maybe she'll have a chance of succeeding. The pressure on her to get that nose fixed was pretty heavy, and she always resisted it for the very reason that you pointed out, because she said, I wouldn't be me. Yep. And by the way, one of the movie critics I I was most I thought most loathsome was John Simon, and the way he treated Barbara Streisand's looks in his movie reviews, I thought, my goodness, it's just disgraceful. And what a writer he is, by the way, and what a talent. But what a despicable man! And I, I she had to withstand that her entire life, actually, Neil. And and I think right to the end, there were these these people who were just mean, just like that stepdad. We're we're talking to. One of, the, one of the authors of one of our favorite books of the year, and it's Neil Gabler, and the book is Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this meteoric rise to fame, that first movie, that first movie that gets a very young Barbara Streisand, an Oscar, an Oscar, crazy, crazy talent, but more importantly, just crazy great fortitude and character more about this remarkable life story this is lee habib this is our american stories the life of barbara streisand north and south and east and west of your life i have only one request of your life that you spend it all with me used to be so natural to talk about forever but used to be's don't count anymore they just lay on the floor till we sweep them away baby I remember all the things you taught me I learned how to laugh and I learned how to cry This is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And what are the odds of this, Neil? Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were classmates at Erasmus High School in Brooklyn. That's crazy. It sure is. <laughs> you can't make that up. Hey, let's talk about her rise to fame, and it's funny, girl, and nobody's ever seen anything like it. Was anybody prepared for it, Neil? Did anyone know it was coming, except Barbara? Well, she knew it was coming once she had landed the role. Um, and there were other people who anticipated it. You know, she, you, the thing about the, Barbara Streisand, she was so young. You know, she was 21 years old when she starred in Funny Girl. Now that is, is kind of mind-boggling to think that this woman captivates all of Broadway at that age. But she sort of knew it was going to happen. Um, I don't think she had butterflies. I don't think she, she had you know, a great deal of self-doubt. And the thing was that once she landed the role, and once the producers of the, of the play and the directors of the play saw her, they knew she was going to make it too. And opening night 
was historic. It's a, it's a historic night in the history of show business, because that night, Barbra Streisand walked onto that stage and into the annals of show business history. She was the cover of Time magazine the next week. That's how immediate the impact was. And then, of course, she makes her very first movie, which was the film version of Funny Girl, and she wins the Oscar. Yeah, there's no, I don't think there's another career that has a parallel to that trajectory and that path. Neil, is there? Not that, not that rapidly. And it's not just, you know, from Broadway to Hollywood. But then at the same time, she's recording albums that win her two consecutive Grammys for Album of the Year. Uh, she's the female vocalist of the year. So she's, at, at this very young age, you know, she's 21, 22, 23, she is triumphing in, in all of these different areas, um, in, in nightclubs as well. I mean, you know, that's another area in which she is triumphant. Uh, there's a wonderful story when she is at the uh, Copacabana, and uh, she comes out, uh, Coconut Grove, excuse me, the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, and she comes out, and you know, every star in Hollywood is there for the first nightclub appearance of Barbara Streisand. And she looks around and she says, you know, if I'd known there were going to be this many people, I would have had my nose fixed. <laughs> By the way, Neil, she had a wicked and great sense of humor on the screen, too, though she loved to play the, the, you know, the lead uh, character in romantic parts. My goodness, could she be funny, too? Well, that was one of the things that she was able to, to straddle, is she could be the romantic lead, but she could also play the comedian. And, and there aren't many actresses who, particularly today, you know, who, can, who can straddle those two ex- self-deprecating. You know, she, could, she was always able to make fun of herself. Yep. You know, she's often regarded as being a diva, but there is a, there is a, a, a way in which you know, Barbara Streisand was able to undermine herself, and that was another bond, I think, between herself and her audience. It's a real talent to have that kind of self-awareness, too, Neil. I mean, in the end, that may be one of the greatest talents of all as an actor, an actress, and a performer is to know how you're perceived and to, well, get ahead of it and control the audience and get them to think what you want them to think about you. And to connect with them. Yep. You know, Barbara Streisand connected with audiences in a way that very few performers have, which I think explains the the nearly 60-year career that she's had. She connected with audiences. They felt that, as I said earlier, she was performing their lives, not just performing for them, but performing them. The songs she sings, even You Don't Send Me Flowers, or People, or Cry Me a River, um, those are songs that express a longing and a loneliness that her fans could connect to. And the characters she plays on screen are characters that her fans can connect to as individuals who are outsiders, who are marginalized. Streisand understood herself and her connection to that audience. You know, it's interesting, Neil. We did an hour on Frank Sinatra, and there was always this part in the set, and we hear him saying this himself, where he said, these are the songs about losers. And, Mm -hmm. And he was always writing about losers. And that kid from Hoboken, which is the Brooklyn of New Jersey, frankly, and the whole state of New Jersey sort of has this same sort of chip on its shoulder and attitude, too. And it gives us Jack Nicholson, and it gives us Bruce Willis, and it gives us Frank Sinatra, and it gives us Bruce Springsteen. There's something about these surrounding spots around New York City 
that, that just produce this talent. I want to talk to you about Yentl. Um, because when I watched this movie, I thought this has got to be the personal desire. Uh, this, this manifests itself as something that I thought was very deep uh, and deeply held to, to Barbara Streisand. How important was that movie to her? Very important. Now, I would say that all of her movies, almost all of her movies, let me, let me, uh, let me put in that little proviso, you know, almost all of her movies were very personal. She didn't make movies that were impersonal, but Yentl was a movie she fought to make. Right. Yentl was a movie she fought years and years to make. She couldn't get financing for it. Nobody wanted her to do it. Her own boyfriend at the time, John Peters, told her she shouldn't do it, which was one of the reasons why they split. Um, but she persisted, as she had persisted earlier, against all odds, and wound up obviously being able to make the film, star in the film, direct the film, and make the film financially successful as well. And yes, I think there's something very personal about that. Why did she want to make it so badly? Yeah. I think that the, the idea of a woman who is scorned, a woman who is treated as an outsider, a woman who is told she will never succeed, that is her story. And then a woman who, by dressing as a man, you know, triumphs over the men, that's also part of her story. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who would say that she acted like a man. She didn't literally dress like a man, right. but she always acted like a man in Hollywood. So that's part of her story. And I think the, the whole notion that in doing so, you don't really win the man. That was something that happened to Barbara Streisand until, you know, relatively recently in her life, until 1998 when she met James Brolin uh, and got married. Uh, you know, she was someone who was almost too much of a woman for many of the men with whom she had um, had relationships. Yep. You know, she was just too tough. Yep. Too tough, um, too strong, and probably in the end a lot of the men didn't feel like men um, because of her yes. strength, Neil. I, I think that's true. Um, and she understood that as well. And I think the, the, the proof of her understanding of that is Yentl. Yep. So true. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, as I remember the movie, she, she sings only in that movie. And when she's singing, it's the equivalent of a soliloquy in Shakespeare. You're getting the inner thoughts. And was that her idea? Because it was really a brilliant... A lot of people criticized her for not letting Mandy Patinkin sing, this great Broadway singer. But that wasn't her trying to not let him sing. It was oh, a dramatic no. device, and it was brilliant dramatic device. In fact, she didn't want this to be a musical. And the only way that she could get the financing for the film was to make it a musical because then they knew they could sell the album. Wow. But what they wanted was a Barbra Streisand album. <laughs> they didn't just want a cast album. Right. They wanted an album of hers. So how did she finesse this? She finessed it by doing precisely as you say, turning every song into a personal soliloquy. Well, in effect, what it does is it allows her to emote in the movie in a very powerful way to the audience. And, and allow her to, allows her to achieve some very subtle effects. I mean, one of my favorite songs in the film is No Wonder He Loves Her, which is where she's observing why Mandy Potemkin is in love with Amy Irving, because yep. Amy Irving is a conventional woman exactly. and submissive. And then she sings that song again later in the film, a reprise of that song. Uh, no Wonder He Loves Her, but she's really talking about herself and saying why she loves the way that Amy Irving behaves, because it's a, it's a kind of a femininity that she can't achieve herself. 
and and the 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 first rendition of that song in its reprise is a very powerful statement in the film and a very subtle effect in that movie. Indeed, and that what a vulnerability uh, that she is able to express on film too, Neil. And I think that may be her greatest characteristic. And I think that's what makes so many of the great artists great. They're willing to expose their own personal wounds to the world. Neil Gabler. Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Thanks for writing this great book. Oh, thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, we love every kind of story. How many, how many shows and radio will give you an hour on John D. Rockefeller, an hour on Justice Scalia, and an hour on Barbara Streisand? And we love doing it, and we're going to keep doing it, and you keep telling us to do more, and we're going to. And again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Neil Gabler, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Go to Amazon. Order it now. We've learned to say lovers.